Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Exhaling Words, the language podcast where I sit here and talk for an indefinite period of time, and hopefully you will listen the whole time. For those of you who do not know, my name is Aaron, and I will be your host for all of eternity. Welcome to hell. (laughs) Anyways, something I wanted to talk about during these early episodes was to lay some sort of foundation behind sort of some of the other things I want to talk about. I know that theoretically this podcast isn't a course, um, and while I do want to share things with you and some of it might be educational, I mean, I am I'm a teacher, I feel like some of those things require background knowledge. And while I don't want to turn this into a course on, let's talk about historical linguistics or Semitic linguistics, I don't know, sometimes I just kind of think, maybe I should explain some things. So, rather than just trying to give you an intro course to historical linguistics, I want to talk about the idea behind this, and then if this interests you, by all means, go out and learn some more. So today I want to talk about, I want to talk about historical linguistics, philology, language contact, sort of, what is it that I do, um, and how do we define those things? Or, as I like to think of it, how do we talk about words with words? Anyways, so when people ask me, what do I do? I used to tell people, like, I'm an academic, I'm a professor, or for people within academia, I would sometimes use the word philologist, that I do Iranian philology. This is not a word that most people know. It's not a very common term, especially not in the United States. I think it is a little bit more common in Europe, um, and people have more exposure to the concept of philology. And so since I've left academia, I spend less time having to define my work, but it's because I simplify it by just saying I'm a linguist. However, it's been years for me to come to terms with this. When I was first starting out in school, I very much rejected using the term linguist or linguistics because I felt like it didn't really describe what is it that I do or what is it that I want to do. So I want to talk a little bit about what is linguistics, what is historical linguistics, and what is philology? And then sort of what does that mean for me personally? So let's start with linguistics. I think a lot of us have heard that term before and know what it is. Linguistics is the study of language, I guess is the easiest way. It's a, it's a very simplified answer, but it is what it is. It is theoretically the study of language in all of its forms. And there are so many subfields to linguistics. There's not just historical linguistics, which is theoretically what I work on, but, you know, there's things about phonology, there's sociolinguistics, there's neurolinguistics, there's morphology and syntax. And, you know, and even within all of these sort of fields, there are subfields. So linguistics is a very broad term. And, you know, what one linguist might do or specialize in or focus on is very different from what another linguist might focus on. Within linguistics, there's a field called historical linguistics, which is theoretically, in the shortest terms, the scientific study of language over time, okay? So it looks at things like, what are observed changes in languages over time? Some of us work on how do we reconstruct the prehistory of languages and build what we call proto-languages, and we talk about things like language families. Some people work on a more theoretical end to think about why does language change and what are the factors that cause language change to take place. Some people focus on very specific things, whether that's uh, a phonological thing, like how did the sound change over time, or a more cultural or geographical thing, like 
like how do we describe the history of a specific speech community and then some people work on the etymology of words i personally like to think of myself as a mix of some of these i do etymology of words i work in the development of you know morphosyntax and i'm interested in specific speech communities or specific geographical regions because of that and because of the field that i was in and trained in i often use the word philology to describe what i do Now, philology, by definition, is the study of a language, or language in general, in oral and written historical sources. Wikipedia (laughs) defines it as the intersection of textual criticism, literary criticism, history, and linguistics. I think that that's relatively true, especially if we look at it from the way philology is often used now. But part of the reason a lot of people talk about the word philology is because the way it used to be used which is why I don't actually like this term or this phrasing of the intersection of textual criticism, literary criticism, history, and linguistics, because philology was around before some of these things. I think as academia has progressed over time, we've learned to focus more and more. And so while something like comparative literature and textual criticism and literary criticism are now sort of their own fields, these often got wrapped up inside of philology. So I think it's less that philology is a combination of these things and more that these are offshoots of philology. Similarly with historical linguistics, philology has always included some form of historical linguistics. Now, because philology is still a very large field, there are people who focus more on the literature, there are people who focus more on the linguistic side. But historical linguistics is a scientific field, and as a subfield of linguistics as a science... I think is a later development. And so we could really think of philology being an older form of all this. I generally simplify it that way. I say that philology is what we had as a field. And then people started focusing more and we got, you know, comparative literature and uh, linguistics or specifically historical or comparative linguistics. The major difference that I see in the present day, and this is why I always felt like I couldn't use the word linguist to describe myself is that linguistics is very often, though not all the time, a much more scientific approach to things. And because it often deals with a more scientific approach and much more theory, it is not always necessary for a linguist to be a speaker or a specialist of that language. What I mean by this, I think, comes in a really good example. When I was at UCLA uh, working on my PhD that I did not finish, (laughs) I spent a semester singing in a Georgian choir, and there were, I don't know, it wasn't a lot of us, maybe 10 or so, and most of the people were linguists, and that's how they got into it was there had been like a linguistics PhD who spoke Georgian or studied Georgian or something, and they, you know, had shared that part of Georgian culture, like traditional Georgian music with other people in the department, and people thought it was really cool, and so they started singing this music together, and and it is cool. Georgian music has its own sort of musical form. It's super fascinating. Completely different topic for a different day. <laughs> and I remember being in that room during practice, one of my one of my first times going. And this was after I had already been to Georgia and lived in Georgia for a summer and studied a session and a little bit of Georgian and stuff. And I remember somebody talking about the pronunciation of the uvular adjective, which is the sound ka. And the person in question who was talking about it was really like emphatic about the pronunciation needed to be all the time. And yes, that is the pronunciation of this sound. 
but I explained to them like, yeah, but you know, a lot of times it gets softened, especially in the middle of a word, you know, it still maintains a lot of its objectiveness or its objective quality, but it's not always this forceful uh, sometimes it sort of almost becomes a fricative and you get this and it borderlines to like a voiced uvular stop, um, like what you hear in Iranian Persian, like and these sorts of words. It's not quite there, but like, for example, well, you might have a word like coffee and say kava, where it's clearly an adjective. In the middle of a word like I love or something, you'll get michvarts. It's a almost. It, it just, it softens. And I explained this and the guy was like, what? And then I made a comment about like, yeah, native speakers do this. And like three or four people looked at me like, what are you talking about? And and, and I forgot how it was phrased, but eventually it came out like nobody in the room spoke Georgian. None of, nobody in the room had been to Georgia. Nobody in the room had spent time with native speakers besides I think a couple people knew the original PhD student who spoke Georgian who had started this choir. And I don't say any of that as like an offense to them. Like you can appreciate music of a culture or of a language community without speaking that language. I do it all the time. Um, there's just a lot of good music out there. But this is what sort of had always made me distance myself from the concept of linguistics. Because I always felt that linguistics was this very sort of dry scientific study of a language that was so separate from the language itself, from the speakers, from the culture around it, that you somehow lost something. You know, similarly, I've had linguists talk to me about, you know, the pronunciation of the um, pharyngeal consonant in Arabic, ain, and how do we pronounce ain, and it's a. And then, you know, they talked about, okay, well, is it really, is it an a? Because in transliteration or in IPA, we write a as its own letter. Or is it a pharyngealization of the neighboring vowels? So when we say something like Ali, the name Ali, is it a, a, l, i? Or is it a pharyngealization of the a sound? And so I have a. And it's sort of the onset of the vowel rather than being like a, you know, a glottal stop or something, it's actually sort of a pharyngealization of the vowel. And while I understand their concern, my bigger concern is, what happens when this gets voiced? And they're like, what, it gets voiced? And I'm like, oh yeah, like, haven't you ever heard like an angry Arab mom yell at their child and say, Ali? And they're like, what? You know, and it's these sorts of moments where I'm like, okay, if you spent time around speakers of these languages, you would hear the way these languages are used and be more in tune with certain minutiae around them. So for example, when I teach Ayn, I teach it on a very basic level. I explain Ayn is this sound. It sounds like you're sort of choking yourself. And I make my students practice with the vowels and you go ah, ay, ru, and then long vowels ah, ay, ru, and you just get used to saying Ayn. But I always point out that like sometimes you'll hear it as a ah, and it'll be it'll be voiced. And and my example is that is that like I've watched Arab moms shout at their sons or shout at their children or something, and if an ein shows up in this word, it becomes stronger and it actually voices. And so rather than just having ah, so like if you're shouting at a kid named Ali, and you say Ali, but if you really raise your voice, it's not just Ali and you're shouting at him. It it becomes tense, and the tensity of the ein often results in voicing of the of the consonant. So you get ah, Ali. So it's just, it's things like this um, that I feel like sometimes in linguistics or with linguists, from a traditional standpoint, there's a disconnect from the language itself. 
Now, that's certainly an overgeneralization. I'm sure, and I have met some people like this, I'm sure there are linguists out there who do speak their languages and are, you know, part of the speech community of these languages, that they understand culture and things. But I, I don't know if I'd say they're the majority, or there are people that work in those subfields of linguistics where that sort of cultural expertise or that level of fluency would be necessary. But a lot of times, for example, with like phonology, you can be very separate from the language to analyze phonology without having to really be a speaker of that language. And so I always saw myself more as I'm somebody who works in language and the speaking of languages and the history of languages and the culture of languages, especially early on, because I was not originally a historical linguist. I was interested in modern languages, speaking them, and I was really interested in slang and colloquials. And to this day, I am. I've learned modern standard Arabic. I now speak colloquial Arabic better than I speak modern standard Arabic because I didn't care about the standard. I cared about how do native speakers speak and then how do I speak like them. Similarly with French. I can speak proper French, and I mean, I, I, I've been told I write proper French very well, but when I speak, I speak very sort of lazy French. I've been told by somewhat snooty Parisians that I sound like I'm from the south of France, which is supposed to be an insult, but I'm just happy that I don't sound American. Um, and so to me, what was always important is how do speakers speak in the most natural way? And part of that comes culture and history and cultural references, and pop culture, and all these other aspects to language learning besides just what is the grammar rule or what is the word for this. And that that still for me coincides and exists alongside the fact that I love grammar rules and I love morphology and syntax. But to me, they're all two very different things. One is a very sort of curiosity-based need to understand something because I care about those details and I just want to know. And then there's me wanting to speak with people. And those are two very different goals for me. And that's why sometimes I have languages that I speak well and that I care about sort of on a much deeper, more emotional level. And then sometimes I have languages that I can sit here and tell you about their grammar and the history of their morphology for hours, but I don't actually speak them. For example, Turkish. <laughs> so to me, this has always sort of been the difference between philology and linguistics. Now, I think the the other sort of subtle difference, or maybe not so subtle difference, is that philology also generally means some sort of historical aspect, whether that's you exist solely in history, like some of the work I used to do, which was solely on dead Iranian languages, or you work on some sort of historical perspective. I think that portion of, of a historical perspective, or all of your research being stuck in history, is something that often defines philology. When we talk about philology, we're often not considering the modern, or we are doing the modern, but we're looking at it in comparison to the past. Whereas linguistics sometimes only focuses on modern. Some people within linguistics don't care about sort of where the language came from. They just look at the modern form. Now, how does this apply to me? Like, I mean, obviously, I've, I've already been talking about, you know, what is my approach in terms of using the word linguist versus philologist or whatever. But what is it, I guess, that I do? I don't know. That's that's not the best question because I do a lot of things. I'm a translator. I'm a teacher. And, and when I teach, I teach modern language. I'm not teaching, you know, Quranic Arabic. I'm not translating, um, you know, Middle Persian for somebody, although I've done that. When I translate and teach now, I translate and teach modern Arabic and modern Persian. However, when I did more linguistic work before leaving academia, and now when I do my linguistic research, I focus a lot on language contact. Now, what is language contact? 
that's something that I think I get asked a lot because when people hear language contact, they go to oh loan words. Let me tell you about you know English words used in Japanese or French words used in Arabic, and that is a part of it. That is not the part I work on. <laughs> I mean, there is some of that, and there and there are certain examples of that that I find interesting. You know, for example, one of the things that I really got into when I worked on Arabo-Persian contact was how do the meaning of Arabic words as they enter Persian change? You know, sometimes they maintain their meaning, and sometimes they they receive different nuances. Sometimes they're still related. So, for example, I once in a Dari class tried to use the word "akhiran," meaning finally in Arabic, and I was told that it meant recently. And for finally, you say "bilakhire," which in Arabic exists. You have "bilakhira," and "bilakhira" means like at the end or towards the end. And "akhiran" in Arabic can mean recently, but it's not the most common use. And so these sort of little things where it's like, well, one of the nuanced meanings of the Arabic word is what caught on in Persian. While there are situations where the words are entirely different. So, for example, kathif in Arabic, kathif means like intense, while kathif in Persian means dirty. I I don't know how it happened. Um, or even if we're not looking at loan words and we look at similar roots in languages, when you compare Arabic to Hebrew. Um, for example, the word "ghani" in Arabic means rich, but the word "ani" or "ani" in Hebrew means poor. How did we get to the opposite ends of the spectrum? I have no idea. Do not ask me. But there are situations where meanings of words change over time. Whether it's a loan word in the case of Arabic words being brought into Persian, or even related words as we see in like Arabic and Hebrew. So that's part of what I work on, but what I am most interested in and the reason I bring this up is because I'm sure this topic will come up several times in multiple episodes and I hope you all are ready to hear about it is I'm interested in the development of verbal systems and the development of sort of just morphosyntax in general and that development in the context of language contact. So For example, within a language like with Arabic, I'm super fascinated by ta prefixing. And so ta is a letter in Arabic, the letter ta. The prefixing of the letter t of t into the front of a verb does a lot in Arabic. And its most notable use and the reason I care about it is that it creates a medial passive. What is a medial passive? A medial passive is a catch-all term for passive verbs, reciprocal verbs, and reflexive verbs, just anything that's really not active. So there are plenty of examples of this in Arabic. For example, like one of one of the examples I always give to students is "kharaja" as a root means to leave. "Kharaja" means to make somebody leave. "Takharaja" would mean like to see yourself out. What this means in a modern sense is actually "kharaja" means to graduate in a transitive sense. So, like the university graduates 500 people every year, while "takharaja" means to graduate just in general. Like you do it to yourself. And we see this a lot, especially like I'd say second and third year students. Especially if you take a class with me, I really hit home on this because it allows us to diversify our writing and to understand better how to express ourselves in Arabic. That you can read a sentence that was written in the active voice and said X did this to Y, and then you can sort of use tap prefixing and the appropriate patterns depending on what the original active verb was or the original transitive verb to create a passive and say and then this thing happened. This exists in multiple places in Arabic. So we have verbs of the form fa'ala becoming tafa'ala, verbs of the form fa'ala becoming tafa'ala, 
and verbs of the form fa'ala becoming ifta'ala, which actually used to be tfa'ala, and for ease of pronunciation became ifta'ala. And this isn't just in Arabic. This exists to a lesser extent in Hebrew. This exists again to a lesser extent in Amharic. This exists, exists maybe to a larger extent in Maltese. Maltese does this to loan words. So for example, in Maltese, there's a verb pita, meaning to paint, and then there's tpita, meaning to be painted. And so just this ta prefixing makes it medio passive. I care about weird things like that. And believe me, there will be a day where I just talk about that for a while. <laughs> but then I also care about things like how do morphosyntax change within the context of language contact? So for example, the use of the subjunctive in modern Iranian Persian is more than likely a result of influence from Arabic. So Arabic's verbal system requires the subjunctive in several situations, and it does not necessarily demand the change of subject, which is what we expect out of most Indo-European languages. Usually a change of subject requires the subjunctive, whereas if you're using, whereas if your subordinate clause has the same subject, you would just use an infinitive. We do see it in Indo-European languages, like Greek, for example. Um, you use the subjunctive even after a verb like, I want you to say thelona something. In the subjunctive, that na prefix marks the subjunctive, but it's because Greek doesn't have an infinitive. Albanian does the same thing. Albanian theoretically doesn't have an infinitive anymore, although Gig Albanian does. But in Tosk, standard Albanian, there's no infinitive. And so if I say, I want to do something, I have to use the subjunctive form in that to-do phrase. So again, this exists in Indo-European languages, which Iranian, uh, Persian, well, just Persian in general, um, sorry, is an Indo-European language. But it traditionally only exists in places where we don't have infinitives. Greek, Albanian. I take that back. I think Serbian uses it, but Serbian has an infinitive, but that's a separate thing. Um, but Persian uses it. And actually, we can look at historical texts and translations of the Quran in early forms of New Persian and see how they used to use the infinitive. And then over time, they started using sort of medial forms. And now we have the modern day form where you would say something like, Miham. Beram, or that's colloquial, but like Michalham Beravam, I want that I go, literally is what you're saying, or I want I go. It doesn't sound different in English, but um, you're using the subjunctive. This theoretically shouldn't exist. And we do see it, we see it in Middle Persian, we see the use of the infinitive, we see the use of the infinitive in Tajik, which is a little bit more conservative here. So you can say, like, Raftan Michalham, I want to go, and use the infinitive Raftan. So, raftan mechoham. You could also say mechoham ravam or mechoham beravam, which even that B prefix, which was theoretically an Iranian or an Irano Afghan innovation, has been brought into Tajik now, and that's a separate thing. So, these are the sorts of things I care about. I'm sorry that I, I got on a little bit of a rant there. But this is what I mean when I say I work on historical linguistics, I work on language contact, and I work on morphosyntaxes. And when I say language contact, I'm not meaning, oh, look at all these pretty English words being used in German. I'm talking, you know, why is the verbal construction in this language the way it is? Oh, it's because another language has influenced it. You know, similarly, I'm recently, in the past year or two, I've become more fascinated with the existence of the evidential in um, Turkic languages, although I think they're more so in Oghuz Turkic languages. I don't know enough about like Kipchak and the other branches to really tell you if it exists, but I know it does in like Azari to a certain extent and then definitely in Anatolian Turkish, but it also exists in Bulgarian, 100% in Bulgarian, and then sort of pseudo-evidentiality exists in 
Romanian and Albanian. And there might be some remnant forms of it in Serbian, I have heard. And so this is clearly something that exists in this region of the world in sort of the historically Ottoman space of the Balkans and, and, and because of influence around Turkish. These sorts of things are what I care about. <laughs> They're super nerdy, and I will talk to them, like talk about them all day long with you. But um, this is what I mean when I say I work on language contact, but I work on morphosyntax, and then I work within this space. So I also define myself by a certain amount of space. Some people just work on the theory behind language contact and morphosyntactic influence that uh, is a result of language contact. Whereas I'm interested specifically in these languages spoken in Western Asia and Central Asia and the way language contact has affected their development over time. So I hope you're ready for that because that's really all I have to talk about. You know, when I, when I sit down and I look at my list of topics I've come up with, they're not always fun things like fun idioms from around the world. A lot of times they're super nerdy things like why does this verbal construction exist the way it does? Like, for example, I was talking to my rabbi the other day about how the, in Hebrew they have a verbal system that looks similar to the Arabic system, both etymologically because they're related, as well as sort of the system of if you put a root in this pattern, it's passive. If you put a root in this pattern, it's reflective or reflexive or whatever. But it doesn't work the same way. And while Arabics can be inconsistent sometimes, Hebrews is super inconsistent. And so, like, you learn that nifal is a passive form, but maybe, like, 50% of verbs in nifal are actually passive, and the other 50% are just intransitive. Which, though, transit or intransitivity could result from a, theoretically, from a historical passive, that if this was thought to have once been maybe not so much a passive, but an actual medial passive, that these are, okay, the meaning of the root has resulted upon the grammatical subject that can be read as both passive or as some sort of intransitive. So it's not that far off. But from a modern perspective, if I were to teach Hebrew or if, you know, like a friend of mine who helps me with my Hebrew, if he were teaching me, he would say nifal is a passive form. But it really isn't. So I hope that helps a little bit in terms of understanding both what is kind of the slight distinction between linguistics, historical linguistics, and philology. And then what is it that specifically I do when I try to describe my work to people? And what does that mean for the kind of crap I will be talking about for an, an indefinite period of time? If you are a linguist, I just want to apologize if I maybe offended you. I do think that linguistics is a great field. And even people who work on super theoretical stuff, like that's needed work. It's just not work that I am particularly interested in. And so I hope that when I say like, oh, it doesn't feel the same to me, I'm not I'm not trying to put it down. It just it just doesn't resonate with me. So, you know, to each their own. There are things that I work on that I'm sure people go, why do you spend your time thinking about that? And that's valid. So I hope that helped elucidate a little bit some of these uh, questions for you all. And yeah, thank you for listening. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, I am polyglotarin on all major social media, or you can email me at polyglotarin at gmail.com. I always love feedback, whether it's a preferably polite uh, correction or something, or just a question or an idea for something you'd like to hear me talk about. So just let me know. And with that, that is the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. (sighs) Ah. <sighs>